This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. We're honored this evening to welcome Mark Coopersmith here. He's down here from Berkeley, another great UC school. Go Bears. Go Cal. Mark's an entrepreneur. He's a Fortune 500 executive, educator, author. He's built, led, launched several startups, several large divisions at big companies we've all heard of, Sony, Rubbermaid, etc. He's also been a strategic advisor to several organizations ranging from VC-backed startups, global corporations such as Intel and DirecTV. He also was a founder of WebOrder, which was purchased by Google. And he's currently a senior fellow, that's a pretty big deal, up at UC Berkeley's Lester Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Haas School of Business, where he runs programs in innovation and entrepreneurship. Let's give a warm gaucho welcome to Mr. Mark Coopersmith. All right, guys. Wow. Sound working? Yes. That is the best. I need to bring you guys back to Berkeley. That is the best welcome. I wish that my students would welcome our guests the way you all just welcome me. So thank you for that. So there's a lot I'm going to share with you today. I'm going to share a little bit about my book. Um, and then we're going to just sit down and chat, Ken and I, about entrepreneurship and innovation in a number of ways. But one thing that I need to get out of the way first is that my wife went to Santa Barbara. So she's a gaucho, so she's here in spirit, so go gaucho. So one way or another, you know, at my house, we are all you see all the time. So so I'm going to share with you some comments, some insights around my book, The Other F Word, How Smart Leaders, Teams, and Entrepreneurs Put Failure to Work. Um, And I'll channel my wife for a minute, because when I told her I was writing this book, she looked at me, and she gave me one of these, and she said, really, you're writing a book about failure. And sometimes that's the way people introduce me. It's like he wrote the book on failure. So we're going to get this out of the way first. And of course, this is not a book about failure. This is a book about how to innovate, about how to drive growth, about how to create engaged employees by using a tool that's right in front of you all the time, which is failure. So we're going to talk about that. Uh, And that led me to thinking, why is it that I wanted to write this book? And I wrote it with a colleague of mine, John Danner, who also teaches at UC Berkeley. And we teach in the San Francisco Bay Area in Silicon Valley, really at the epicenter of the innovation economy, where more unicorns are born there every week than probably in the rest of the world combined. And there's something somewhat unique about that environment, and that is that it's okay to fail. There's something somewhat different if you walk up and down Sand Hill Road where the venture capitalists are where if you fail and you gain insights from that and you put it to work, you have an opportunity for redemption. Now, if you fail, 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 it's probably not so good. But 
if you fail and can put that to work, then you have those opportunities and they're embraced by that community. So it was with that insight, having taught entrepreneurship at Berkeley for more than a dozen years, that John and I said, let's go out and talk to business leaders around the world. But let's talk to others as well. Let's talk to astronauts and jet fighter pilots. Let's talk to entertainers from film and television to music to Broadway plays. I mean, what fails more than a Broadway play, right? Let's talk to governors of states in the U.S. and elected politicians elsewhere. And we saw some key patterns, different ways to process failure that you could then put to work. And that's what I'd like to share with you a little bit more today. And then Ken and I will sit down and talk about things that you also have some questions about. All right. So the good thing about failure is if you have, say, a technology failure, it's all part of, part of the discussion, right? All right. Let's try that again. Great. So when you listen to, say, a CEO on an earnings call, what do they talk about? They talk about how their company is innovative, how their company is growing, how their employees are engaged. These are the things that all CEOs want, not just the publicly traded companies, but all CEOs, all business leaders, and really all leaders of organizations want to drive those, those elements. I mean, how many of you, when you get that job, want to work for a company that's innovative? Show of hands. How many of you want to work for a company that's not innovative? Right. So you want to drive that. We'll talk about how that fits in, too. But there's something that gets in the way of attaining these objectives. And that something often is failure. A failed strategy, bad timing, poor execution, wrong team. All of these elements get in the way. And when they happen... What do you do about that? That's where what we need to do is learn about it. So the first thing that we, or learn from it, the first thing that we have to understand is that failure does happen all the time. So let's look at some of the statistics of failure. Who's done, who's made New Year's resolutions here? How are those working out for you? It's November. Not so well, right? I think there's only six anyway, because you get to reuse them every year. 88% of New Year's resolutions fail. In Silicon Valley, actually in venture capital in general, 75% of the companies that are vetted, the best of the best by venture capitalists, don't even return the money to their investors. Three out of four fundamentally fail. 99% of patents are unprofitable. Failure happens all around us. I even threw... uh, Michael Jordan in there, he missed more field goals than he made. So it's a reality that we all face. In fact, in World War II, this is the U.S. Army, they came up with an expression because failure was everywhere. You guys know what snafu means? Situation normal, all fucked up. It is the other F word, right? So, so failure's everywhere. Now, 
This is an opportunity to show that we're all experts at failure. So here's what I want you to do. Think of a failure that you've had, that you learned from. Take a moment, because I'm going to ask you to share it with the person next to you, and then we're going to switch. All right, everybody have one? All right, ready? Turn to the person next to you, figure out you know, which way you're going to go, and you have a minute to share not just the failure, but what you learned from it, and then I'll call time and we're going to switch. Ready? Go. All right, switch. Person, other person share their failure. Anybody, who's, who's got a good whistle? Thank you. So is that pretty interesting? Did anybody gain some great insights out of that? I'm not going to ask anybody to share out of turn here. But this is something that we're all expert in. So let's figure out, let's take a look at how we can put failure to work. The first, we're going to start with entrepreneurial ventures, and we're also going to talk about, I'm going to talk some about larger ventures, and the role of failure and how failure insinuates itself is different in these different types of companies, in these type, different types of ventures. So the first is that your screw-up became my startup. What does that mean? That means that entrenched companies fail to meet the need of an existing customer or an emerging customer, they don't see a new trend that's coming up. So they fail, they fail fundamentally in that regard, which gives rise to the opportunity. Now, earlier in my career, I worked for Sony. Sony created the Walkman. They created the personal, personal listening category. They owned a music company, Sony Music. So, of course, as we went to digital, Sony invented the iPod, right? They didn't. Apple invented the iPod. What did Sony miss? Sony missed that they had to create a better online experience. They didn't get the different divisions in their companies to work together effectively. Their screw-up created the opportunity that launched Apple from being just a computer company and one on the brink of going out of business into the most powerful consumer electronics company in the world today. The second is the entrepreneurial approach. My, screw, my startup will screw up before it grows up. 
So think about Lean Startup and the whole methodology around customer discovery and rapid iteration. A startup is fundamentally different from an enterprise. An enterprise's job, it has a proven business model, is to be more efficient and grow with its existing business model. But a startup is a temporary experiment, a temporary organization in search of a working business model. And what do startups do? Effective startups go out and they run experiments in real time. Product market fit, um, business models, and they learn from those experiments about what worked and what didn't work. In fact, when I teach at Berkeley, I hand out these cards um, in my workshop for startups class in the MBA program. And one of them is an OSHA card, and the other is an AHA card. Because what we look for is I ask my students and my teams to share what worked and what didn't. And when somebody has a problem, somebody else will often say, aha, there's an insight that I could put to work in my venture. So we use that every day. In fact, I should probably make those different sides of the same card because they really are. Now, who all knows the concept of pivot? You all are familiar with pivot, right? Pivot is where something isn't working and you change direction. So let's look at an example on this. Does anybody here use the mobile application Bourbon on your smartphone? No. Which is, makes sense because Bourbon is no more. But Bourbon was funded by Andreessen Horowitz, one of the most admired venture capital firms. And its founding team went off and created essentially a Swiss army knife of mobile apps. It had gaming, it had e-commerce, it had social media and social networks, it had a little photo sharing application and a number of others. And when they took it to market and they took it to their, their um, customers, their demo beta customers, what did their customers say about the product? They said it sucked. They said they didn't know when to use it, they had great apps for each of them on their phone already. And the founding team almost threw the whole thing away and went away. But then they heard something. They said, you know, this little photo app you have is pretty good. We would actually use the photo app. So instead of scrubbing everything, they got rid of everything but the photo app. 30 days later, they relaunched the company. And Instagram was born. So by listening through that failure they found a company that a year later was sold to Facebook for more than a billion dollars, and even since then has been the most uh, valuable, the fastest growing feature that Facebook has. Now sometimes, instead of pivoting, maybe you want to rivet. You want to keep doing what you're doing, but you want to experiment through those failures. Now does anybody have this product? Anybody know that product? Wait, is it this one? <laughs> so here's the story of WD-40. In 1953, the Rocket Chemical Company set out to create a new lubricant and something that would also help protect the rockets that they were working on. And they created a formula called Water Displacement Formula Number 1, which didn't work, WD-1. So they created WD-2, and they created WD-3, and so on, until they arrived at WD-40. And they haven't changed it since then, and it's become one of the most enduring, durable, and valued brands and products. 
So rivet. Sometimes instead of pivoting, you want to stay with it. So as I shared, we spoke, John and I spoke to a broad spectrum of business executives and leaders in the U.S. and around the world. And we found patterns. And we found seven stages of a way to deconstruct failure and turn it into a strategic resource. And we looked at failure in a number of ways this way, too. We didn't want to create a book that was around a memoir. I failed, I persevered, I succeeded, because you can't really put that to work. Lean Startup had been written. This isn't a book just for entrepreneurs, just around the entrepreneurial process. That's been done. This isn't a self-help book. This is a book about how generally we can put failure to work. So here are the seven steps, and then I'll give you some examples, and then we'll sit down and talk. Number one, respect the fact that failure happens a lot. Number two, rehearse for it. We do fire drills. We do a lot of other rehearsal around, say, if you're in the military, drills all the time. Do we rehearse for failure in business? No, we don't. Number three, recognize it earlier. Put in place great early warning systems so you can react better. The fourth stage is react. And react quickly to stem the damage and then to be able to leverage the equity that you have with your customers and stakeholders and then be able to move on quickly. But before you move on, the fifth stage is reflect. Reflect upon what just happened. Why did it happen? And what are we going to do about it? Sometimes there's a temptation to try and respond too quickly. And then once you have those insights from the reflect stage, number six, put in place your rebound strategy. Go from the defense into the offense. That's a strong execution stage. And number seven is... Remember the lessons of failure so that you create that right culture to drive innovation, to drive growth. Seven stages of the failure value cycle. Number one, respect failure. A company that I think respects failure as well as anyone is Google. It's not a small company, obviously, but they are not afraid when a product fails to pull it from the marketplace, like Google Glass. What do they do when they pull a product from the marketplace? Do they fire or get rid of that whole team? No, they reassign that team. In fact, they work to reassign those team members into other projects that can benefit from the insights that those individuals and team members just just learned. So Google does a wonderful job at that. And Google even realized that their core business, the search and ad business, is one that at some point will likely fail. So what I love, what they did recently, is they created Alphabet, which you all probably know, to say we really have two businesses here. Our current business, which we are going to optimize and grow and make as efficient and valuable as possible to generate cash, and our business of new projects, space exploration, self-driving cars, medical devices, and those rules will be different for those different businesses so that they can experiment without having to run the entire business as a single business. They respect the fact that failure will happen. Why? Because they know that they're going to need another engine to drive growth for the next 10, 20, 30 years. Number three, recognize. So here's a company, Polaroid, that 
didn't recognize where failure was coming from, and even if they did, they did nothing about it. Great company went away. A group of students of mine recently, about a year ago, came to me and said, you know what the problem with photographs are? They're all stuck in our phones. We can't actually print them out and look at them. They said, you know, there used to be this company called Polaroid. I wonder if we can create something like that. So I'm going to show you a video of what they did. They said, here's an idea. And they took the idea of the immediate, the instant photo, and they took it one step further. Well, nowadays people take thousands of pictures with their cell phones, but they never look at them. So we decided to create an object that will, be, that will make them able to share pictures with their, their friend and family in a tangible way. Print is the first smartphone case that prints out pictures instantly. You just have to play your smartphone, snap a picture, and it will print instantly. We worked during a year on about 15 different prototypes to come up with one product that's really easy to use. For example, it doesn't use Bluetooth technology or Wi-Fi. You can take a picture, but you can also use pictures from Facebook, Instagram, any picture that is already on your smartphone. My biggest design challenge was to create an object that will work with different types of smartphones. We are compatible with the iPhone 5, the iPhone 6, and also the Galaxy S4 and Galaxy S5. And we are trying to bring it to more smartphones. So we don't need any ink cartridge. All the ink is already in the paper. You just have to hit it, and the picture will appear like, like magic. Like I said, what we really love about instant cameras is the whole experience. So we try to capture it, by recording a short videos of five, six seconds just before you take a picture. This video will play automatically on the paper through augmented reality when you scan it with our app. We wanted to go further than just printing pictures. We wanted to bring uh, memories that you could hold in your hands and that you could give away whenever you wanted. Print is for everybody, because everybody likes a printed picture that you can hold in your hand. You know, it's, it's like a memory that uh, you can give away. Pretty cool, isn't that? They're kind of like Harry Potter photos, <laughs> right? Hold them under your phone. So these guys said, look, there's a need that's not being met anymore. We recognize it. And now the landscape has fundamentally changed. What can we do with that? Think about what it can do as well. Let's say you're going out for a job interview. You take a picture with the recruiter, and then you leave a personal message um, that they just scan that photo, and they'll remember you that way, or business cards or other things like that. So there's all sorts of ways that this technology can start to be used. So these guys tried to raise $100,000 on Kickstarter, and they raised one6 it's pretty darn good. And then, of course, the other the investors came in and added several million more. So they're off to the races and the product ships in about a month. Um, and I signed up for a lot of them. So, uh, so all my relatives are getting this for the holidays. So recognize and do something about it. Because Polaroid was the ultimate company to be in a position to do that. Now, when 
a disaster happens, a failure happens, what do you do? And the answer is you need to react quickly and in the moment. So Netflix almost killed itself a couple of years back. Who, who watches Netflix now? Exactly. Netflix almost killed itself a few years back when they introduced a, a new um, product line, a new company called Quickster. They were going to split the DVDs by mail from online. And what happened was then anybody that had an account was going to get charged twice as much, et cetera, et cetera. And what did their customers do? Their customers left in droves. Netflix lost 75% of its market cap in just a couple of months. So everybody figured Netflix was done. I mean, Netflix was on sale, right? It was 75% off. But Netflix then went out and said, we made a mistake. And I'm going to share with you what their CEO, Reed Hastings, did and shared a video with all of their subscribers. Hi, I'm Reed Hastings, CEO and co-founder of Netflix. I'm Andy Rundich, and I head up DVD operations at Netflix. We've been working for the past 14 years to build Netflix year by year into the best possible service we could build. And we're making this video today to apologize in person, or at least on camera, for something that we did recently. So Reed Hastings went out and said we're sorry, he, and he went on to say more. And what do you think happened? Netflix subscribers stopped leaving. Some of them came back. It's like, okay, we liked you. And now you heard us. The other thing that Netflix did was they said, what else is going on in digital media? We're watching it on all of our devices. So they rethought their strategy, as long as they were about to be gone anyway, and they doubled down and started creating original content like House of Cards and others, and has since recovered all of that last val- lost value and become the number one video service in the world. They reacted well, well enough to save the company, reflected on what was happening in the broader changes and then rebounded extremely well. Okay, the last stage, and then I've got a few final comments and we'll sit down, is remember. And this is really important because when a failure happens, what's often the first question? When something bad goes wrong in an organization, what's often the first question that people ask? Whose fault is it? Right? Whose fault is it? And... There's better ways to address that if you want to create a culture that is one where innovation is valued. So the things as far as as remembering goes, let's look at it this way. It's the words that you use. It's the questions that you ask. It's the stories that you tell, and it's the relics that you have. So instead of asking whose fault it was, what if we asked what happened and why? What can we do about it? And then who was involved and how can they help us recover? How about stories that continue through generations within companies, which are really important because if you bury failures, what's going to happen? The next generation of the company, those failures will happen again. And then finally, relics. Wouldn't it be great to walk into the rocket chemical company and see boxes or spray cans of WD-1 and WD-2 and WD-3 to remember how that company persevered? So to have some of those elements there that remind you of how the company persevered and thrived through failure. We did some work in this book with the Great Place to Work Institute. And I'm not sure if you know it, but they're the ones that always write these lists, the 10 best, 100 best places to work. And they said the number one element that is important for a best place to work is to drive trust. And trust is created in the midst of failures, in the midst of crises. When things are going well, 
it's not that important. You don't build that trust. But companies then that do have problems and workers can see their bosses have their backs, their coworkers have their backs, are ones that create that dynamic that creates a great place to work. So this is our seven-stage failure value cycle. This is the way that, that we put failure to work through all of those stages. A couple of final, a few, three final thoughts that I'd like to leave you with. One is if you're in an organization, this is typically advice that we often give to larger companies, think about your portfolio of failure zones. There may be parts of your business, like a manufacturing line, or if you're in a nuclear submarine, no failure, please. But there may be others, like in new product development, where you say, let's make experiments. Let's create a lot of opportunities to learn new things. If we want to create innovation, we have to take risks. If we take risks, we know sometimes some of those risks will fail. So let's have zones where we allow that to happen. In fact, some companies even have failure metrics where they say what percentage of these new initiatives failed and what did we learn from them. Number two is to apply the golden rule, which is if your competitors had a microphone in your conference room and they knew everything about you, what would they do? Well, apply that to yourself and how would you respond? So do that exercise, do that rehearsal around failure. And then number three, even though I teach a lot of MBAs, don't always think like an MBA. Projects fail or succeed. But engineering has failure, has a discipline around failure analysis. The creative processes have rough drafts. Failure is a key part of this. And science is the scientific method, is the ultimate. We learn through experimentation, through positive and negative outcomes. Like Thomas Edison said, I found 10,000 ways the light bulb doesn't work. I was recently at Ford's R&D facility in Silicon Valley, and I came across this. Um, and actually, I asked my host to take the picture. because, if you, By the way, if you're ever in an R&D facility, don't take out your cell phone and take a picture because they do not appreciate that. Ask your host to take the picture for you and send it to you. Failure is simply an opportunity to begin again, this time more intelligently, and that's Henry Ford. So this is certainly a, an approach, an ethos, that many of our early innovators embraced. So that's a little bit about failure. And we call that becoming a failure-savvy leader, which doesn't mean to encourage failure explicitly, but how to leverage it and how to use it. So by the power of the regents, I now actually provide, I, I endow you with the title of failure-savvy student, although I don't want you to fail any of your classes. So that, oh, and if you want some information on it, go to the otherfwordbook.com. The first four or five chapters of the book are there. There's a report card there. By the way, don't go to the otherfword.com. That's something else altogether. So go to the otherfwordbook.com. <laughs> Ken. Good. That was great. Oh, good. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Really enjoyed your book here. I'll give a little plug for the book here. Excellent, really well written, 
very accessible voice. There's some really good worksheets in here. There's a report card on the different uh, value cycles of the failure. So highly recommend the book. Thanks for yep. joining us. Yeah, one of the things that we talk about in the book is what would you do if you knew you wouldn't fail? That's a, that's a tough thing to do. We, we actually we taught this class at UC Berkeley. We created a failure class. Uh, and we, one of the assignments was we asked the students to go out and do something they thought they would fail at. So we made that as an exercise in the book. You know what was amazing about what happened there is a lot of the students didn't actually fail. You know, they were, they were successful because they weren't afraid mm-hmm. to go out and try. We challenged them to do that. So speaking of afraid, let's talk about VW. What happened there? Yeah, talk about a failure, right? Um, so one of the things that we talk about a lot in the book is, and, and I shared some comments on it, is creating a culture where you're not afraid to fail. You know, this whole concept of trial and error versus creating a culture of trial and terror. If the people who tried and failed didn't do so well, we kicked them out. So VW is fascinating. We don't really know what happened there yet. But looking at it, you can assume, you can say, something small happened. For example, they were going to miss the emissions test. You all know what happened with VW, obviously. By the way, who has a Volkswagen diesel here? Okay, we've got a couple of those, so we'll see what happens, right? To resale value or whatever else. But when I look at it, I say, you know, there was a small failure somewhere, and people were afraid to come forward and to say, we have a problem. So they covered it up, and they covered it up, and they covered it up, and it's been going on for years and years, and it rose all the way to the top. And that's where a small failure and a bad culture potentially is a potentially existential threat to a global company. Earlier, John Greathouse was talking to the audience about presentation skills and the importance of that. Maybe you could share a little bit about what you teach your students and maybe even how failure ties into presentation skills. So um, one of the things that my students do is they practice pitching. So coming out of many of my courses, the final is a eight or a 10 minute VC pitch. Now, this is really useful because in many cases they actually go on and make investor pitches. I would say that if there was one piece of advice that I would give, whether it's pitching a venture or any presentation, it is what John was talking about. It's to practice it and practice it so that it feels that much more natural, so natural. Um, And the biggest mistake that my students make is they work so hard on getting the content right, especially within teams, they don't get it right. You know, they never practice. So they come up, and you can tell that they've never run through it. So my one piece of advice there would be to practice, practice, practice. Perfect practice makes perfect. Yeah. Or well, at least it makes it better. Right. Yeah, at least exactly. it makes it better. Uh, speaking of presentation and speaking, a small plug for Big Speak, who brought Mark down. So thank you very much for your support of the TMP. You talked about Lean Startup a little bit. And we have a class here on the Lean Startup. Could you give us a little bit of background maybe on the Lean Startup and some of the pros and cons of that and how that ties into failure? Yeah, so, so Lean Startup is very much, if you were to distill it down, it's a pretty basic approach, which is take a concept, even before you have a concept, take a problem 
and go out and talk to customers. Gain their insights, go out, to talk to more, go out and talk to more customers and more customers until you really understand who they are. Identify who those customers are, build personas, and then create hypotheses around all of that. So it's very much an iterative process, and you benefit by saying people will buy this product or not. That's a hypothesis. If you're successful, great. If it's not, you say, what did you like, what didn't you like about it? And you go ahead and iterate for, you know, more from there. So it's very much a process that builds on failure. It's very much the scientific method. And it's not just for products. It's for your business models as well. Great. I've got a lot more questions for you. In a moment, we're going to turn to some students here who have prepared some questions here in the front row and hear from them. So would you like to start? Yeah, exactly. When do you know when to stop persevering and to cut? I mean, we've all heard the stories of the, the entrepreneur who finally got funded on his 87th pitch or something like that, right? And at that point, is the answer, that's why you have to persevere, or maybe you shouldn't have gone for 87, right? So... That's, a, that's actually really more of a judgment call in many ways than others. And this is where you say, am I learning something from my failure? Because if you go through a process and you don't learn anything, then that's ultimately the failure. But if the 87th pitch got to that point because each of these other pitches, you learned something and you felt you were making progress, then that makes sense. But if you feel you're fundamentally stuck, then perseverance at a certain point doesn't make sense. So here's an example. Angry Birds. Angry Birds was, their, was Rovio's 53rd, who knows, 53rd, 54th game, something like that. And they were out of cash. They were going to run out of cash. They had made more than 50 games before that. And if you talk to Rovio, they'll say they learned something from every game to create what ultimately became their big hit. So my response to that is, if you stop learning, if you stop gaining insights, then it's time to quit. But if you feel you're continuing to learn and get closer, then keep persevering. Thank you. Hi, Mark. My Hi. name is Reno. And uh, I'm wondering if you think uh, that failure for startups is an, an important stepping stone on the way to success, and also whether you think that... Um, public or less public failures are more helpful in a startup uh, setting? So is failure in a startup, let's, let's, I'll take them one at a time, a prerequisite for success or a stepping stone? Absolutely. Because it's highly unlikely that you've gotten every one of your product um, specifications right or you have the right business model or the right channel. So you want to constantly be using that to get feedback. And the failure should be really instructive. And when you fail, the next thing you need to do is you need to ask why you failed as opposed to saying, well, that didn't work. Let's try something else. It's gaining those insights that you can, that you can gain from it. What's the second one that you asked? Do you think it's more helpful to have public failures or less public failures that are kind of taken care of within the startup itself? Yeah, so, so let, me, let me pile onto that question a little bit and then see if I can come back to it. And that is... We often hear, 
it's better to learn from other people's mistakes than your own mistakes, right? And we know it's less painful to learn from other people's mistakes, but the question is, does the learning really stick? You know, when you tell a kid, don't put your, your hand near the flame because it's hot, eventually what's the kid going to do? Right? Until he burns himself, at which point that learning is indelibly burned, you know, imprinted in that way. Uh, with regard to public and private failures, you should be able to learn from both of those. You know, to the extent that you can have your failures in an environment where the learning takes place, but it doesn't extract as public a toll, that's a good thing. Where you all are right here, what John was saying earlier, this is the safest place for you to take the biggest risks. Because you're not spending other people's money or your own money outside of tuition. Um, it's an opportunity to take chances with colleagues, with fellow students that want to help you succeed. So this is a great place to do that. At a certain point, you probably don't want to make your failures too public. But if that happens, the key thing is to respond properly like we saw with Netflix and go from there. All right, hi, I'm Nathan. Um, so my question is also two questions. So how early on in life did you catch the entrepreneurial bug and what were some of your early entrepreneurial endeavors like? So I didn't start out as an entrepreneur um, per se. I'll, I'll say my first job after college was working in the music industry, which really was a ton of fun for where I was at that point, where you all are about to be. Um, so I did that for a couple of years, then didn't really become an entrepreneur until probably close to 30, at which point I launched a brand new business with Sony to create a new division that worked across all of our different divisions, electronics, film, music, television, to create... So this was an inside entrepreneur, which is also, if you want to be an entrepreneur and you have the opportunity to do it inside a large company, to start something up or to, to have the benefit of that platform to work on, is a great way to practice those muscles. Now, you also may say, no, I want to do it on my own, and then go ahead and do that. I spun a business out of Sony. I was running e-commerce at Sony, among other things, built a technology platform and spun that out. And since then, I've been hooked. Hi, Mark. My name is Madison. And my question is, your company, Web Order, was acquired by Google. And I'm wondering how that process went for you, um, what the most challenging part of that was, and what was the most surprising thing about it. Yeah, so, so my company, Web Order, was acquired by Google. But there were a couple of acquisitions in between, actually. So I spun Web Order out of Sony, took that through funding and growth, um, and was eventually acquired by a company called Natopia, which was involved in e-commerce, among other things. Natopia was acquired by Motorola. Motorola was acquired by Google. By the way, I wish I had sold web order directly to Google. At the time, Google wasn't really that big. Um, the thing that was really interesting, and it was, it was one of the elements that actually brought me back to start teaching again at UC Berkeley, was understanding that as an entrepreneur you have great partners and colleagues in your venture capitalists, in your investment bankers, and the other folks that you work with, including companies that may acquire you. But you're not always as aligned as you think, as, as you may be told you are, with some of those other players. 
And I think it's really important for entrepreneurs to understand the process that you need to go through and how to use resources like that, capital, professional services, and others, and also to understand that you want to create your own network of other entrepreneurs. And if you're the CEO of other CEOs that are facing those same challenges as well, that can provide you with really that unvarnished perspective and that pure perspective that's really useful. We've got time for about two more questions. Hi, Mark. My question to you is, for people that are planning on starting their own companies sometime in their lives, how important do you think graduate education play a role in that process? For example, do you think earning an MBA is necessary nowadays for aspiring young entrepreneurs? So I think the answer to that question about how important graduate education is is really up to everybody. I do think, especially undergraduate education, getting that degree is essential. Um, I know some of my colleagues, like Peter Thiel and others, say, drop out of school, I'll fund you, whatever it is. And and I say, this isn't a pitch, but stay in school as a professor as well as a parent uh, to make make sure that at least you exercise those muscles. Um, With regard to graduate education, it depends what is it that you really are trying to get out of that graduate education. Is it a technical discipline? Is it an MBA? And how important is it to what it is you ultimately want to accomplish? Let me anchor that with advice that I give a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs, which is there are three things that need to come together, in my mind, to help you make a decision whether or not you're ready to launch a company and whether this is the right company for you to launch. The first is that you're dealing with a topic that you're passionate about. It's so important, first of all, you're going to have many sleepless nights, and if you're passionate about it, you just know a lot about it. You are inquisitive about it. You want to ask everyone about it, number one. Number two, are you good at it? Do you have the expertise? And this is, I think, addressing your question, and that is, do you have the skills that you need, or can you recruit the skills you need where you are right now? And if not, then the answer is pretty clear. I'd say go back and get those skills if you feel you really need them. If you feel that you can or you can attract the team that you need, then I would say go ahead and go with where you are and what you are right now. The third part of that discussion really comes out of things like Lean Startup, which is, is there a legitimate market opportunity out there? Is it a big opportunity? Have you tested it? Have you spoken to customers? Have you tested your hypotheses? And again, those areas of passion and expertise will come together to help you at the intersection of those three areas. One more. Hi, Mark. Um, So in your Wall Street Journal article, you said failures are not usually a result of stupidity or laziness or carelessness. They're a reflection of mistaken assumptions, uh, misplaced resources, and nimble competitors. So what is one example of a time that a misplaced resource, where where you you failed by misplacing resources or uh, had mistaken assumptions, and what's the best way to avoid them? Yeah. So let me address the other one first, which is, if it is some of the ones that I said it's not always a part of, those are the types of failures, by the way, where you say, okay, who's responsible? You know, if you've done something illegal, if you've missed it, whatever it is, absolutely, those are ones where those people need to be addressed in ways not you know, as benevolently as I might suggest. But with regard to misplaced resources... Um, Lots and lots of examples. I would say many, if not most, failures are it's because opportunities really weren't pursued. 
So here's an example. Let's, let's stay on the concept of, uh, on the topic of photography. Um, and let's look at Kodak in a couple of ways. So we all remember Kodak. And as you probably know, Kodak actually invented digital photography. So they had that resource. And what did they do with it? They locked it up. And they did that because their business model was so reliant on selling cheap cameras and good, you know, and, and high-margin film, chemicals, paper, things like that. So where did they put their resources? They didn't put their resources into a new technology that could have transformed the company. They put it instead into trying to save their company, their existing business model. Now, as the company spiraled down, here's something else about Kodak. Uh, take a look at your smartphone. Do you know how smartphones work? You, click, you, you touch the glass, right? You know what's underneath the glass? Film. You know who owns the film market for smartphones? Fuji, which was Kodak's competitor. What did, Fuji, what did Kodak do with its film business as it was spiraling down? They decided they didn't need it, so they sold it off to gain the resources. So those are just two examples in one company of misplaced resources. Mark, thanks again for visiting with us and sharing. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.